Good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Romans. We're in chapter number three today. And so uh, if you'll find your copy of God's Word, Romans chapter number three. And uh, thank you for those who are joining us online. If you'll find your copy of God's Word and look with us there to Romans three. You'll need your Bible when you come to church. And so bring it. Some of you bring it electronically and others bring it the old fashioned way. And so... uh, uh, we encourage you to bring your Bible, make it a part of uh, your study as we come together in, uh, in the Spirit. Hasn't it been sweet to worship the Lord together and since God's Holy Spirit working among us this morning? Romans chapter number three, we're going to begin today with verse number 21. Now, before we read the passage today, what's the greatest news that you ever heard in your life? Can you think of the greatest news you ever heard in your life? And what is that what great news that you ever heard in your life? And uh, there you go. Jesus saves. He does, doesn't he? He saves us, doesn't he? Saves us as sinners, right? And so today I want us to look into this passage of Scripture, and it's the greatest news in all the world. And uh, verse number 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat the propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. It's powerful and it's true and it's glorious and it's life-giving. It points us to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, today I pray that you would forgive us of our sin. Lord, I ask you to forgive me of my sin, my failure, my rebellion, my my lack of obedience in my own life. Lord, today I'm painfully aware of my own sin. Lord, I come to you and say that we, all of us, Father, have sinned against you. Lord, we've disobeyed and rebelled. Our hearts have grown cold. Oh, Father, we have sinned, and you know it, and we know it. But Father, we thank you that through Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness of our sin. That the blood of Jesus Christ, your son, cleanses us from all our sin. Lord, you promised in your word, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I thank you that the blood of Jesus Christ your Son, covers all our sin. Father, we thank you that we can't earn or work or deserve a right standing with you. But Lord, we are saved freely by your grace and not by our achievement. Oh, Father God, we come to you today thanking you for the love of God, the love that you have demonstrated toward us in Jesus Christ by sending him to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. I pray that today these words of truth would not fall on deaf ears and hardened hearts. But Father, I pray that we might hear it afresh of your great love and the great righteousness you've demonstrated for us in Jesus Christ. Father, our hearts grow hard. They've grown stone cold in some of us. Lord, you know about it. We've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, and we've experienced your judgment. 
Father, we come to you today saying, God, change our hearts of stone and make them the heart of flesh. Cause us to be reborn, to be alive and quickened, and Father, filled with the Spirit of God. Father, may you do a work in us today. Oh, Lord, I pray that today this would not just be going through the motions, that our worship would not be perfunctory, but, Father, that our worship would be in spirit and truth. Holy Spirit of God, we ask you, we invite you, we humbly request that, God, you would work in us today. You would convict us. You would draw us. And, Lord, that you would humble our hearts to fall before you and say, we are your servants. Do with us as you please. Oh, Father, have your way in our service today. May Jesus Christ be magnified. May this service be all about you and not us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, as we look at this text of Scripture, it's one of the great passages you'll find in all of God's Word. Leon Morris said, perhaps it's the greatest, now listen, the greatest single paragraph ever written. Perhaps the greatest single paragraph ever written in all of humankind. That's unbelievable. It's amazing as we look into this text. Martin Luther called it the chief point the very central place of the epistle and the whole Bible. Calvin declared, there's not probably in the whole Bible a passage that sets forth more profoundly the righteousness of God in Christ. It's been said, if one misunderstands this passage, he runs the risk of misunderstanding the entire book of Romans. Today's text is one of the most important texts in all of the Bible. It is the turning point in this epistle to the Romans. Paul has been showing and proving to us that both Jew and Gentile have disobeyed God's law, and they are and we are without excuse before holy God. But his argument now switches and it turns. Notice the verse, verse 21, but now. These words are so powerfully important. But now, at the present moment, in this dispensation, in this time, things have all changed. The gospel has come for all of us. If you notice Paul's argument in chapter number 1, verse number 18, he says in chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he goes through this whole argument in the end of chapter 1 and in chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3 is that Jew and Gentile are alike, all of us, and we're shut up underneath sin and that we're all guilty before a holy God and that the wrath of God, God's righteous judgment, is being poured out on all of us. But this pivotal verse begins, but now. The righteousness of God is being revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. He says it's the good news, and it's the righteousness of God is being revealed. And formerly it was the wrath of God, and now he's talking about the righteousness of God. All godlessness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth are receiving rightly the wrath of God, but now... There's this righteousness from God. Not only is God himself righteous, but God is making righteous his people. He is sending his righteousness to us, to unrighteous people. And it's done apart from the law. What does that mean? 
It means it's not dependent upon the law. It's not dependent on your good works. Aren't you glad that God is going to make you a right person and it's not based on your good works? It's based on the good, the, the love of God. It is being revealed. That means it's manifest. It's being made known. It's like the mystery hidden from the ages is now unfolded. It's the thing that the law and the prophets spoke about. They were pointed to, a, to the truth that God alone can make men and women right before him. The whole of the Old Testament was pointing toward Christ and the fulfillment of the law. A right standing comes from God alone. It's his work and not our works. This salvation, this being made righteous, is by grace. And it's always been his plan that way. And it was always his way to save his people that way. Verse 22 The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. To whom? To all who believe. There's no distinction. What he's argued before is there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile because all are sinners. And uh, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so he says there's no distinction for this righteousness from God because it's for Jew and Gentile alike, for the religious and the irreligious. It is God doing a work to all who believe without distinction. Now, verse number 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So today in the message, we're going to look at four things. Number one, our problem. And so we're going to spend some time Again, revisiting what is our problem. Second thing that we'll look at is God's provision. The third thing that we'll look at is God's demonstration. And fourthly, our appropriation. So first of all, our problem. What is it? In chapter 3, we understand that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned. Who has sinned? How many have sinned? What's he say, verse 23? All have sinned. Notice in chapter 3, verse 10, it says, There is no one righteous, not even one. How many people are righteous? None. No, not what? Not, not one. Tell the person next to you, you are not righteous without Jesus Christ. You're not. There's verse 11, there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. Verse 12, all have turned away, all have become worthless. Tell your neighbor, you're worthless without Jesus. Put the without Jesus in there, would you? <laughs> There's no one that does good, not even one. You see, all we like sheep have gone astray, everyone's turned to his own way. All have sinned and come short of the glory. Notice it says we've all sinned. The word sin, that means that we're guilty. So understand that our problem is, first of all, we're guilty. We have all sinned. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is coming up short. Sin is rebellion against holy God and his will his authority, and his word. Sin is the rebellion against his law. Sin is in all of us. All of us have sinned. There's some of you here today and you think, well, I'm not all that bad. I'm not a terrible sinner. I mean, I'm not like other people. I'm not like old Joe, and old Joe is a terrible rascal. Old Joe cheats and lies and steals. I'm not like old fill in the name. And so I'm better than they are. But you're still far from God yourself. Amen. And you may be looking down on them and maybe it looks like they're in the cellar and you're on the rooftop. But the distance from the cellar and the rooftop to the stars, that distance is nothing. 
and you fall short of the glory of God. You're not even close. Some of you are arguing, well, I've never murdered anybody. You ever been angry at your brother? It's murder in your heart. That's what Jesus said. You've heard it said from the ancients of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is guilty before the court. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother is guilty before the court. You see, all of us have murder in our heart from time to time. Well, I've never committed adultery. Oh, really? What did Jesus say? He said, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery. You see, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not see the kingdom of God. We're all guilty before a holy God because all of us have sinned. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In the book of Romans, chapter 5, in verse number 12, listen. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Adam walked in the very presence of God. He saw the glory of God face to face. God's plan was the man and the woman were made in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. And they fell short of the glory of God. The children of Israel saw the glory of God. But the children of Israel fell short of the glory of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we have fallen short of the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. All of us are sinners. Amen. And we're guilty. David wrote in Psalm 51, listen to his words. Listen to the words of David. In Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. To whom did, David, to whom did he sin against? God. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. You see, the truth of the matter is we sin because we're sinners. But we're also sinners because we do, in fact, sin. Because all sinned, Paul says in Romans 5. And sin has affected each and every one of us. It spreads to us. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And a, a terrible thing, more terrible than COVID, which we're all thinking about, and how fast it spreads and the devastation that it brings, a more terrible thing happened. When man and woman sinned against holy God, there was a fall that affected all of us and that sin has spread to every human being that's ever walked the face of this earth, save one, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen. And we're all guilty. Secondly, we're enslaved. We're enslaved in our sins. Sin holds us captive. In Romans chapter 6, 
In verse number 16, listen to the scripture. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey, either in sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? In verse number 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. But verse 21, so what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. Here's the truth. Sin was not only in us. Sin is something we committed, but sin, sin had its tentacles in us, controlling us. And we were enslaved in our sin. And the trajectory, the pathway of that sin, the result of that sin leads to death. Paul writes about the way sins affect and hold on our life. In Romans chapter 7, verse number 18, For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good I want to do, but I practice the evil I do not want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, I'm no longer the one that does it, but it's sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do good, evil is present in me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. Oh, wretched man, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is Jesus alone that can set you free. Wow. Sin corrupts your mind. Sin makes your conscience defective. Sin skews your perspective. Sin flaws your judgment. Sin leads to death. It enslaves you. Thirdly, sin brings you under the righteous judgment of God, the wrath of God. You're under wrath. In Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In chapter number 2, verse number two, 1 and 2, therefore every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself. Since you, the judge, do the same things. Yeah, you like to pick on other people and judge them for their sins, but you do that you have the same sin inside of you. Verse 2 We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Jesus said something very similarly in the Sermon on the Mount. And so be careful about our judgments and how we judge. And don't you shouldn't judge yourself first? Now, let folks understand this. We're under the righteous wrath of God because our sin is against holy God. When you sin, even if it's against your brother or your sister, and you do something hurtful to them, your sin may hurt them, but your sin is an affront to the holy God. Your sin is against him. Many years ago, I went to my favorite restaurant to eat, Waffle House. The tables were all full, so I sat at the counter. And the girls were waiting on me. I, Chuck and I always talked about it. it was a good place to get therapy, to go to the Waffle House. And I was sitting there waiting to get my uh, nutritious food. And, um, and there was a man sitting there, and he had quite colorful language. As a matter of fact, he used some expletives. I thought I knew them all, but he knew some I think I didn't know. And he said, can you pass me the salt? And I said, sure. 
He said, you pass that hot sauce? I said, sure, pass it over. He said, so what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor of a church. Oh, man, have I stepped in it now, he said. <laughs> he said, oh, Reverend, I, I apologize about my mouth. And I just peppered my eggs. and I said, don't apologize to me. Your sin wasn't against me. Amen. It's against God. He goes, oh. Well, that's something to think about. I said, yes, it is. <laughs> Your sin is against God. And he is holy. And he is just. And your sin leaves you under judgment. We are not only that, we are helpless. We talked about this last week. You can't fix yourself. Amen. Tell your neighbor, you can't fix you. You can't. You need help. Tell your neighbor, you need help. Well, you can't help yourself, can you? Because we're all sinners. Notice what it says in chapter number 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. Not only do you have no ability to help yourself, fix yourself, but you're hopeless. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. You see, you can't fix yourself. You cannot rescue yourself. You're in a hopeless condition. Yes, March 25th, 1947, it's just 60 miles east of here. Centralia Coal Company, mine number five, mine shaft had an explosion. At 3.27 p.m. in the afternoon, there was a dust explosion and methane fire. And about 32 men were able to escape, but 111 men were trapped inside the dust-filled, fire-filled, deep underground shaft mine. One of the worst mine disasters in Illinois coal history. Men hid in the deep recesses of the mine in the darkness with no light. They piled debris and rocks around them and they were hoping for rescue. But the fire was raging because of oxygen and the fans could not blow enough oxygen out so they sealed the mine to shut off the air supply so that the fire would be put out. They hoped for rescue, but none ever came. Some of the men scribbled on pieces of paper and put it in their lunch pails. One man wrote this note, Dear wife, goodbye. Forgive me. Take care of all the children. Another wrote, Tell dad, quit the mines and take care of mom. What message would you send to your family if you were in hell and had no hope? You are hopeless without Jesus Christ. Amen. And you are doomed to hell. Yes, Lord. But that brings us, that's man's problem. But that brings us to God's provision. In verse number 21 and 22, look at the text. You say, Pastor, there's some good news. Yes. Yes, there is good news today. 
It says, but apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. This righteousness is how through faith in whom Jesus Christ, to whom all who believe. There's no distinction. Wow. How did he make us righteous? These unrighteous people. How could he make just this unjust people, sinful people? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at what Paul says. Verse 24, they are justified freely by his grace. Paul uses three picturesque words. Three different scenes are found in these words. First of all, he justifies us. He, adju he justifies us. The scene here is the courtroom. And we stand before the judgment seat. We stand before the lithostratos, in Hebrew called Gabbatha, or the Romans called the Bema. It's the extension of the judge's chair. And the judge sits exalted in his chair. And there is this table before us. And before that table, this bima, this bar. We must give an account of our life. And the evidence is brought up about our life. And the sentence should be guilty. And deserving death. But the verdict from the king is acquitted of all their guilt. Declared righteous. How can he declare righteous, unrighteous people? Oh, it's the grace of God. In Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 4 and verse number 5. But the one who does not work but believes on him who justifies whom the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Isn't that a good word? Second picturesque word that is used on how he would justify us is that he redeems us. Notice what he says. And he says in verse 25, God presented him, meaning Jesus, as the mercy seat. Wow, that's different translation, isn't it? This is the Christian Standard Bible, and in this particular version, and this it says, as the mercy seat. Yours might say as the atoning sacrifice. Or yours might say, the propitiation. Thank you, Lord. This is God's redemption of us. And he says, he, in verse number 24, this is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redeem here is the picture of a slave market. And so in the slave market, there's a price to be paid for the release. It is the release by a payment to deliver, to liberate, to set free the captive. A picture, it harkens back to when the children of Israel were held in slavery in Exodus. But God in his great power heard the, his great care and his love and mercy. He heard and did not forget his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And he did not forget his promises. And 400 years later, they are locked into slavery in Egypt. But God, in his great power, with his outstretched arm and his wonderful provision, provided for the salvation of his people. And the Passover is a year-by-year reminder as the blood was painted over the doorpost and the children of Israel came in. <clears throat> the lamb without spot or blemish died so the firstborn would not die. And God in his power rescued his people from slavery. In Hosea, we have a beautiful story of God's work with the prophet and his wife. God has Hosea, the prophet, the man of God, to marry a woman who has adultery and idolatry in her heart. Her, her name is Gomer. And Gomer plays the harlot after a while in their marriage, and she has children that aren't even his own. One of his children he calls no mercy or no love, and another children he says, not mine. That was the name he gave them. She spirals downward into sin and idolatry and adultery until she's living a life of a whore, a harlot, until she finds herself on a slave market as a prostitute. And God says, go to the slave market and love again and buy her. And Hosea, this man of God, goes to his wife, who has disgraced him and her own self, and he pays 15 shekels of silver and an omer and half of grain. And God says, love her again. And you were just like her. And God said, I'll love you again. But there was a price that had to be paid. And the price was the ransom of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. 1 Corinthians 6 says, you've been bought with a price. And that price was the blood of Jesus Christ. Redeemed. How I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. Redeemed. 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 By the blood of the Lamb, redeemed, redeemed, and his child, and forever I am. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us. The third picture is atonement. It is the word atonement. In the tabernacle, the picture is now not the slave market. The picture now is not the courtroom. But the picture now is the tabernacle or the temple, the place of worship. In the place of worship is the holy place, the holy of holies. And in the holy place is a box, an ark. And that box has inside of it the law of God. And covering the top of it is a gold-plated, golden-hammered-out covering. There are two cherubim facing each other with their wings extended. And there is, this is the mercy place. This is a holy place. This is a place where atonement and propitiation is made. And a beautiful picture comes from the book of Leviticus on the Day of Atonement. 
And when the priests would, when the children of Israel, were, the priests would select by lot two different lambs, two different goats. And these goats, one would be for the sacrifice and another would be the scapegoat to carry sin away. The bull, the, the blood of bulls would be slaughtered and sprinkled on the altar for the priest and his own sin, his own family in the holy place for his own family. The blood would be splattered seven times completely upon the altar and in the holy place. And then there was the transfer of sins, the praying and asking God, forgive us of all of our sin, confessing our sin. And then they would slaughter that innocent goat without spot or blemish and capture all of the blood they would capture the blood in a bowl, and then they would take that blood and sprinkle it, not only the altar, but they would take it into the most holy place once a year by the high priest only, and he would take that blood and he would splatter it on the mercy seat, saying, this is an innocent who died for guilty, and the innocent died for guilty. Oh, holy God, we deserve to die, but this innocent victim is dying for the guilty. But the truth of the matter is, and then he would come out, and then he would place his hands on the other goat and confess all of their sins, and it would be taken out into the wilderness far, far, far away from the camp, and there die alone and left out into the desert. And the one who took him out would come back, stripped down, get rid of all of his clothes. And it was the transfer and the removal of sin. It was a picture. But we are told in the Bible that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But what did take away our sin? It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. 21 out of 27 times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word propitiate is propitiation is the word for mercy seat. It is the place where there's atonement. It is where the holiness of God is satisfied in a righteous death of an innocent one. And that one is Jesus Christ and him alone. And our sins were paid in full by Jesus Christ, our Savior. Isn't that the greatest news you ever heard in all the world? Would you, would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in his blood. Not yours, but his. And that's what it says in our text, isn't it? In chapter number three, look with me. In Romans chapter number three, he says, God presented him as the mercy seat. How? By his what? By his what? Blood. Through faith. It's by his life. The life is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. I think it's somewhat disturbing that in modern churches we don't talk about the blood of Jesus. There's nothing that can take away your sin but the life of Christ poured out for you. Amen. And you can only be saved by his blood. Thirdly, God's demonstration, verse, we'll have to hurry here. Chapter 3, verse 25. God presented him as a mercy seat by his blood through faith to what? Demonstrate. What's he demonstrating? His righteousness. Now, God is demonstrating something powerfully before us all, that God himself is righteous. Because in his restraint, aren't you glad God shows restraint? 
passed over sins previously committed. That means he didn't ignore them. He was just patient toward you. He didn't ignore the debt. That would be unjust. But instead, God provided the payment for our debt, payment of our sin, through his son, who took the full penalty of our sin. He suffered in our place. He took what we deserve. He paid for it in full. The sinless one took in himself the sin of all who believe, and he paid our debt. And on the cross, he cried out, it is finished, paid in full. Therefore, God has proven himself to be just and the justifier. He is righteous, and he's the one that makes righteous, and only he could. It always also demonstrates his love. And Romans 5, 8 says, But God has demonstrated his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What more could God do to show you how much he loves you? He gave his son for you. Don't you sit here today and say, I don't think God loves me. Stop it. Look to the cross. God loves you with an everlasting love. What is our appropriation? How is this appropriated in our life? Verse number 26. <coughs> he would be just and justify, into verse 26, the one who has what? What's it say? The one who has what? Say it with me, faith. faith. Say, everybody say faith. 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 In whom? Jesus. Jesus. It's not enough just to have faith. It's not just faith in God. It's faith in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus. And notice, this is done by grace. Notice, it is by faith and trust in him alone. Verse 24, they are justified freely by his grace. The word grace, it means freely. It means freely. It's, it's, the New American Standard translates a gift. It is a gift, but it's free grace. It's unbought love. It's unmerited favor. It's at no cost to you, but a great cost to him. Your salvation is no transaction that you pay for or you bargain or barter for. You can't earn God's grace. It's a gift. If somehow or another you were able to contribute to your salvation by your works, then it wouldn't be based only on his grace and the glory would be shared with him. But if you have nothing to bring and you're bankrupt and you throw yourself on his grace, then all the praise and all the glory goes to him. It's free grace. Sola gratia, grace alone. But it's also sola fide, by faith alone. It's through faith. It's not a work. Faith is not a work. It is a response that you believe God. You trust in God. You obey him. And you yield yourself to Jesus as Lord of your life. 
For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Hmm. Oh, <laughs> oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span. At Calvary, Thank you, Lord. mercy, there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. It's prideful to think that you're not worthy to be saved, that you must do good works to deserve it or to earn it. You cannot experience God's grace by your works. And it's also prideful for you to think that your sins are too heavy for him to lift or that your stains are too dark for him to cleanse. His grace runs deeper than all of our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face. Will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. That is the good news in Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your word. It's powerful. It's true. It's life-giving. Oh, Father, have your way in our hearts and lives this day. In Jesus' name, amen.